0: We're going to use now our time in the Gospel of Mark, so if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Mark chapter 5, and I guess part introduction and part a continuation of the announcement is this will be our last week in the Gospel of Mark until next year, so lest you think we're not gathering for the rest of the year, uh, we're actually starting an, an Advent time. Where we will look at other passages of scriptures as we prepare our hearts for the celebration of Christ coming into the world, God incarnate. Uh, but to do that, we're gonna take a break from Mark and then we'll resume at the beginning of 2023. Can you believe that it's 2023 almost? So, Mark chapter five, we will finish the chapter, and this is actually the perfect time. To push pause on our series in Mark because it is really like a grand finale of the story of Mark thus far. Uh, This really, this today's sermon will almost be like a part three to a sermon series that we began when we first started Mark chapter four, because it, it is one long story that Mark is telling us about the life and ministry of Jesus and the disciples who followed him. So by way of remembrance, Mark chapter 4 starts by Jesus telling these stories, these parables. And he told all of these parables, and it says, without a parable, he did not speak to them. And it goes directly into these parables moments of really intense adventures, as it were, where Jesus goes through a series of different snapshot stories that, like the parables, have a meaning for us to grasp a heavenly truth in an earthly story. But they're real stories. And today, we'll have our last two adventures with Christ in these story forms that Mark is giving us. And before we look at them, maybe because we started with some parables, so let's end with a parable-like story. Uh, Maybe a good way for us to understand the climax that we're about to experience today is through a parable that comes to us in the form of a novel. So how many of you have read C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? This is a show of hands for some great readers out there. It's a great book. If you've never read it, it's actually the perfect time to maybe pull it off the shelf or go pick it up because... The setting of the Chronicles of Narnia in this installment of it, the first installment, is a a land. It's a fictional land where this evil witch has taken over the land and cast a spell of evil. And it is, as they say, a beautiful picture of some horrible spell. It is always winter and never Christmas. So imagine as we go into this season, the cold and the dark with no payoff of Christmas. It's just winter and no Christmas. And the story begins with four children finding themselves through a passage of the wardrobe in this land. And as they're growing accustomed to the spell that they, they find themselves under, they're hearing whispers that the rightful king is on the move. And so I can't help but think of the story thus far in the book of Mark. As we looked at last week, there is a spell over the land. The spell is much more than just the Roman occupying force, but there's a darkness that covers the earth. But the rumor, as we read the Gospel of Mark, the rumor among the people, there's hope that's stirring because they believe the king might be on the move to take back the land. And this is where the story has us, and we'll pick up the story as these four children from England come across a, a beaver family. So if you haven't read the book, the animals can talk in this mystical land. And... As, as they're, they're talking to this beaver family, they're, they're going to tell them some insight about the rumors of the king. His name is Aslan. And they ask good questions. They want to know about the king. They, they, they have hope that the king would do something to make the land right, but they are shocked by the update that they get. And here's the conversation that happens between uh, Mr. Beaver and Susan. He says, Aslan, the king, is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. This is a description, an analogy, a, a, a parable form of a collision that's happening in these stories right now. Because you'll remember, as the disciples are following Jesus, they're picking up on one of the lessons that he's telling them through his life. It's going to be very fearful. They're going to follow Jesus into storms. As we looked at last week, Jesus is going to do things that as otherwise uh, neutral people, they're going to be so afraid that they want nothing to do with Jesus. And as Noah and the band led us into worship, one of the things that you have to worship through sometimes is the tears of suffering, the challenges of life that are unavoidable, the circumstances of your life that remind you that life is hard. And if you're looking for a Jesus that will remove you from the challenge and the difficult and the dangerous, you will not find him in Scripture. One of the lessons of these stories is that Jesus not only goes into safety, but he calls his disciples to learn through their fear, to learn through their tears, to learn in ways that will bring other people to their knees. And this is a violation of the world that we live in, the culture that we live in. In some ways, the default mechanism of the human heart is to avoid all forms of danger. We live in a a day and age where safety is elevated above everything. It's like, is it safe? We leave the door. It's like, be safe. Is this person safe? Is this a safe place? Is there anything that will trigger me into some sort of dangerous realm in my mind or my heart or my life? Avoid danger at all costs and be safe. That is the mantra. And in some ways, because we're a church that has to live in the mangled up world that we live in, it can seep into what we do right now. And there are sometimes messages that we feel comforted by that are not True hope that says, church itself can be fun, exciting and safe. in the day and age we live in, it's like church can be fun. Church is a T-shirt and it's a bumper sticker and it's a brand and it's songs you love, and it's sermons that make you laugh, and go forth and be safe. And what Mark is doing through a collection of stories that we've studied and two more that we'll study today is painting a theme of people that were in intense fear. It is not simply an expose about the power of Christ, which Mark chapter 4 and 5 is often elevated as a a way to witness the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ to calm a storm. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? The authority of Christ to cast out a legion of demons with his word. Who is this? that at his word, the demons tremble. And we will see the authority of Christ over disease and even death itself. And yet, if you do not have a coupling of the power of God with the compassion of God, it does not matter. The question that starts the journey the disciples have been on is, do you even care? And as you suffer through life, some of you today, Some of you walking with a limp of suffering that God is healing you from. And for all of us, it's coming. Do not be surprised when this world gives you trouble, but take heart. The question of the hour is not, can God deliver? The true theological question deep in your heart is not, does the God of the universe have the power to heal, the power to save, but does he have the compassion to care? That's what we really wrestle with in our life. And these two stories are actually the grand finale of the collision of the power of God, meeting the compassion of God, asking the question, is he safe? No, he's dangerous. But he is, in fact, good. And so last week, Jesus was asked to leave as a herdsman of swine lost 2,000 pigs And they looked at his power on display, and they said, it'd be better if you just took off. And we resume the story now on our third boat ride as a church. We've been going back and forth on the Lake of Galilee here. And in verse 21, we're going to get off the shore again. It says, now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat on the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. So last week, he was on the Gentile side of the lake, We saw him send the healed demoniac into the Decapolis to be a witness to the power of God. And now he is back on the Jewish side, where he had previously done many miracles. There's a crowd waiting for him. Many gather to see what he's going to do now. And now back on the Jewish side of the lake, we see our first character in really a story that has two main scenes but one main theme. And now we have scene one unfold before us with an introduction to the first character. It says, and behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And he begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be healed. And she will live each one of the collection of the stories that we look at from mark chapter 4 to mark chapter 5 has a moment where someone is so desperate or so aware of the authority and the power of Christ that they fall at his feet why appropriately we began our worship service to prepare our hearts for the word this morning by saying i surrender Because one of the themes is, what happens when someone surrenders to this dangerous yet good God? And in this moment, we see another example of where that surrender comes from. Now, wouldn't it be nice if all spiritual surrender to the authority of the Word of God came out of the good nature and the volunteer heart that you all have so willingly this morning? Wouldn't it be nice that sermons were so powerful and the word of God was so clear and so convicting that we all just surrendered our life to God as a volunteer, like we're signing up for children's ministry? And yet, time and time again, we see true surrender happens not because of someone's good natured heart, because of someone's incredibly drastic circumstance. I cannot think of a worse circumstance. As a pastor, it is hard for me to think of a more difficult situation to walk someone through than when a parent is pleading on behalf of a dying child. And when the gospel writer says, my daughter lies at the point of death, it is a translation issue to try to paint this picture as drastic as it is. She is at death's door. If you don't do something, she will die. And yet in our first glimmer of hope for us this morning, as we look at these stories as true historical narratives, and also without a parable, he did not speak. There is a heavenly idea that comes to us in earthly form, or forms. We see a glimmer of hope where a man in desperate circumstances falls at the feet of Jesus and says, but if you do something, she will live. For those of you with any kind of Roman Catholic background, you may have remembered this chapter being pointed out to you as the chapter of the New Testament often dedicated to the Patriot Saint, St. Jude. And he is the saint of hope in impossible circumstances. That's what this chapter is. Hope for impossible circumstances a demoniac that nothing by way of human intervention could heal. A ruler of the synagogue, a man of great stature, a man who's given to the story by us a name. We know his name, great stature in the community. By all accounts, a moral man, a religious man and yet his only glimmer of hope is to fall at the feet of Jesus. One of the first pictures we have at the unsafe call it is to come to Christ. So far in the story, the real tension exists between those in the synagogue and Christ himself. Most of the times when we study the gospel, the leaders of the synagogues and the religious leaders of the day are not the ones falling at the feet of Jesus, but this man surrenders all. And he steps out of the synagogue into unsafe territory for his colleagues and crew. And he says, my last glimmer of hope is that you really are the miracle worker that many people say that you are. If you heal her, she will live. And then it says, so Jesus went with him. A question that will come up again and again when we study hope in the impossible circumstance, a question that exists in your hearts and in your minds right now, does God care? The question of the entire thrux of these stories, the disciples come to Christ and say, do you care if we perish? And what was his answer? Did he say, yes, I care? He calmed the storm and he said they had little faith. And then he told them to follow him through a number of circumstances where the answer would not come by a word, but by an action. It says that Jesus went with Jairus. A desperate plea meets the God who can help. And that is the close of scene one. That's the close of act one. And now we're going to get an interlude that can maybe lend to us some other questions that exist. The God who can help and yet often delays. The God who we wish would work according to our timeline and our anxious worry. And we have another version of the life of Jesus where he seems to be in no hurry because now we have another opportunity For Jesus to hear the question, do you even care? Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, and she had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Hope for impossible circumstances. I can't help but parallel the two stories that we had Last week to this week. Last week, a demoniac. No chain could hold him. The shackles would break. No human could tame him. There was nothing that anyone could do. And now we see another story. Not of demonic oppression, but of physical suffering. And there are times in life where you will walk through physical suffering, where 2,000 years later, there is no physician that can help you. There's no amount of money that you can buy your way out of the suffering of the physical body that you live in. It says, in fact, it only got worse. Human intervention sent her in the wrong direction. Another story of an impossible cause. But an impossible cause with a glimmer of hope meets the compassion of Christ, in verse 27. But when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said if only i may touch his clothes i shall be made well immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction and jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him turned around in the crowd and said who touched my clothes but his disciple said to him, you see the multitude thronging at you, and you say, who touched me? They're right, by the way. There's a crowd thronging or pressing, as it's in some translations. They're essentially, some are there to, to witness the miracle in love and care of Jairus and his family, and others are there like the paparazzi just to see what he's going to do. But the scene is, everyone's around him. Everyone's touching him. Anybody that can get close to him is pressing in on him. And he says, who touches me? This story reminds us and paints a picture of some pretty important theological truths. First, Jesus looks at this woman and says, your faith made you well. He didn't say the hem of the garment. And yet that is what she had put her hope in. If I can just touch the hem of the garment. Now, sadly, some people still think if you get around people, you just got to be around them and there's an aura or you can, you know, collect some memorabilia that they touched, a relic that they blessed. Maybe you've tuned in to a a late-night televangelist blessing a piece of cloth and selling it to you for $1,000. Don't buy it. (laughs) But it still exists in us that there's something that if we could just touch what they've touched. So part of this is to remember that it is an imperfect faith, yet faith of a mustard seed. It's a tiny amount of proper faith. Faith that Christ himself, something about him, has the power to heal. There's a lot of improper faith in the sanctuary. There are all sorts of things that we get wrong, and it takes years for us to look back and realize we got it wrong. It is not the perfect faith that heals. It is faith in the perfect healer. The other thing that is really important for us to understand about this superstition that she may have is that it's rooted in some safety. Rightfully so, there's all sorts of descriptions that Mark gives us as to why she may not want to fall at the feet of Jesus, to interrupt his walk, to push her way to the front of the crowd and just have a one-on-one with Jesus. When we get the description of what she's going through, it is by all accounts an ongoing menstrual cycle, a flow of blood that she had for 12 years. And on this side of the lake, that makes her an unclean person. So not only is she unable to be healed, not only is physical suffering part of her affliction, but she also has suffering from society, a suffering of loneliness, a a suffering of lack of acceptance, a a suffering of the title of unclean. So part of the sympathy we have to have for this woman is it's not just superstition. She's in some ways just trying to get healed and get out. She's not necessarily looking to go public. And yet in this moment, we have another profound theological truth, that Jesus is more compassionate than we want him to be. (laughs) Jesus is not looking for a drive-by healing. Jesus wants to do more than bring her back to neutral. Jesus looks around, not because he's angry that his power was violated without his permission. He looks around to do something bigger than she thought. He looked around to see what was done, and the woman, fearing and trembling. Another reminder, every part of the story, it isn't safe. She's unclean. She's violating the religious standard, the social standard. She's going to have to go through the ridicule and the shame of even being there, and she comes forth fearing and trembling the holy person she may have just violated. Fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, she came and fell down before him. An act of surrender. And she told him the whole truth. The details of the story that would have been lost to the hands of time unless she had come And opened her heart and opened her life and made a full confession that for 12 years she has been an unclean person and her life is utterly ruined. And yet she confesses and tells the whole truth. And Christ responds, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. A peace that goes beyond the physical healing a peace that openly, for all that could see and potentially ridicule and shame, that if you're asking Jesus what she think, he thinks of this woman, she is a sinner that is now adopted into the family of God. She's a daughter of the Messiah. And be healed of all of your affliction. Some of you hear this call to believe in a God who is unsafe. And this is the part of the story where you are called into the storm. How nice would it be to come to church for the drive-by message, the drive-by encouragement, because your marriage is afflicted, or your kids are afflicted, or your body is afflicted, or your finances are afflicted, or the world is pressing on your mind and your heart, and you need the intervention of God for a hopeless situation. And so you sit in the back and you need two weeks So you can get back on your way and get back to neutral. And for all of us who listen to this, not only as a real narrative of historic value, but also as a living parable, this woman is unclean and she's brought in by the forgiveness and the peace of Christ to be restored to the community. And that is the cost of discipleship. As much as it would be nice to come to church and keep it private, to get my encouragement and my endorsement from the word and go about my life. The model of scripture, when those are cut by the heart and they're actually given the message of redemption by God, he says the next step is to go public. The next step is to come forward and be baptized for all to see. The next step is to confess your sins so that you can be forgiven. That God is not allowing us to just get healed and go on. He actually wants all of us. He wants the part of us that desperately needs to be a member of the body of Christ. He wants the part of us that needs to know that whatever you think you're suffering through right now, God has more compassion. And of course, the story goes into the next scene with one of those frustrating, God-do-you-even-care moments. Because while he is caring for a sinner to restore her to the community of Christ, what do you think Jairus is thinking about? (laughs) He's looking over the shoulder, maybe checking his sundial watch. (laughs) We've got somewhere to be. Have you ever been in a restaurant? This happened to me last week, so maybe that's why I'm thinking of it. You've been in a restaurant, you place your order, they give you your number to wait. You clearly see someone came after you, they place their order and you're both waiting and then they get their name called first. That's an injustice. <laughs> your, your lust for coffee or your, your greed for food is happy to see that injustice. Well, now take it one step further. Now you're not at a restaurant. Now you're in the emergency room and you come pleading for the doctor to save against the clock against all odds someone who needs to live and someone comes in with something they've been struggling with for a decade <laughs> i'm looking at them i'm like you can wait another couple hours cuz i'm on the clock right now and yet what does the great physician do the great physician is not worried he is not anxious He's not in a hurry. He attends to the need of the one who is untouchable and cast out in spite of the status and the need of the ruler of the synagogue. Some of your frustration this morning or in your timeline of your journey of God in the past or the future, you'll say, God, do you care because I'm against the clock and you're helping other people that don't need you as desperately as I do. And to make matters worse, the worst fear, maybe the worst Bible verse as part of a narrative that you can ever read. These are the kind of verses that make me not want to even preach sometimes because I know that this is real. And we get to verse 35. Because this woman got the attention and the compassion of Christ, we now have verse 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. There is no worse suffering than for a parent to hear those words. I cannot think of something worse to go through as a father. I cannot think of something harder to pastor through than for someone to have to go through the tragedy of a loss of a child. And those come from the synagogue with the update. And they say, don't trouble him anymore. Just leave Jesus alone at this point, leave him out of it, it's over. And this is the beginning of the temptation unto despair in your life. When the circumstance goes so far into the realm of danger and impossibility, and you are on such unsafe ground, that the temptation in your ear is to say, You could just stop bothering God. Stop bothering Jesus because it's over. And somehow, we see in this story that this was not an accident. This was all part of a story having a deeper meaning. And if maybe you are feeling that way about the power of God to redeem, to heal, to comfort, to care for your life, maybe I should just stop bothering him because it doesn't seem to matter. We now get words, I imagine, whispered to Jairus that we're all supposed to listen to in spite of the update, in spite of the recommendation from those in the house of the synagogue, Jesus says to Jairus, do not be afraid. Only believe. It's one of the times I appreciate the Amplified Bible. It says, do not be afraid. Keep believing the belief that you had when you fell at my feet and said if i lay if you lay your hands on my daughter she'll live and now you are so far beyond what you were comfortable with now you really are into the unsafe nature of the power of god and jesus says to jairus and he says to every single one of us somehow And I preach with all humility, knowing that some of you need to hear this for a circumstance that you're still waiting on, whether it's 12 years or it's the moment you get the news. He says, keep believing. Do not stop believing. And we get the end of this story in a way for every single one of us. Me as a father, as a husband, as a friend. There is no avoiding this moment. I hate to say it, but some of you are thinking this is good for a friend of mine. This is for that person I know that is struggling with their child or their affirmity, their affliction. Here is the reality. Jesus comes on the scene and deals with four realities of the world we live in and shows you that he's more powerful, that they're real. The chaos of nature is real, and he can calm it. Spiritual darkness is real. But with a word, he can cast it out. Disease and affliction is real. There's no avoiding it. And here's the worst reality. Every person in this sanctuary is going to have their heart broken by death. It's going to crush you. You are going to read this passage of Scripture someday and say, now I know what he was thinking when he got the update. My wife and I were walking and somehow, because she loves me so much, she started thinking about me dying. (laughs) And she started to cry and she said, I could never handle you dying. But then she realized that one of us will in fact be at the other's funeral. We are all going to go through the tragedy of the fire, that death is real and it comes with an incredibly difficult sting. And one of the reasons that we look to Jesus and say, do you even care? is because we do not see all that he has planned. His compassion runs deeper than what we're willing to receive. She came for a drive-by healing and to get back to life without anybody knowing. And this guy came for a fever to be cast out. He did not come for resurrection. And yet in this, we find one of the most tragically comforting stories in all of Scripture. In verse 37, he permitted no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. Most commentaries will point out that those who wept and wailed loudly are the hired mourners. Part of the religious practice, it was something you had to do, especially as a ruler of a synagogue, is to have people actually wail and weep on your behalf. And one of the lessons that we'll get is that the hired hands often miss the actual hand of God. It says, when he came in, he said to them, why make the commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, some people have read this and said, They had a misdiagnosis. She wasn't actually dead. And Jesus was saying, she's just in a deep sleep. If we shake her, we'll wake her. But the gospel of Luke, given to us by Luke, the physician, says that her spirit had departed, that she was dead. And what Jesus is actually doing is using this girl's real life to tell us about all of our lives. That to Jesus, a fever and death have no difference in his power. He can heal, heal a fever, but he also looks at death as nothing more than an extended nap. This girl was not spared a death that would leave her needing the second resurrection. She was used to remind us how Jesus views all of these things. A deadly storm is nothing. A legion of demons is nothing. Nothing. A disease that confounds the physicians of the day is nothing. And death itself, the one that still hangs over every single one of your heads, can be defeated. And me preaching that, probably now, surely, if I, if I get too far away from the safety of the sanctuary, and you believing that, you believing that, you really believing that someone who dies is really just sleeping in Christ, will find you ridiculed. You may ridicule your own mind right now. It says in verse 40, and they ridiculed him. Other translations say they laughed at him. They, they go from mourning to laughter in the exact wrong way. Really? You think she's only sleeping? You think there's something left to be done? I love that Jesus taught in parables. Remember the point of the parable is for those who have ears to hear would actually hear. And now Jesus lives in parables for those who have eyes to see will actually see. Some of you wish you were around to see Jesus work in real time. But people in his day ridiculed him. They laughed at him. They rejected him. And he put them all outside. Said, you guys are not in. We are meant to have a hope that is so different than what the expectations of the world put on what we are hoping for. You really are meant to believe in the power of God unto danger on your life. Why? Because he's good. And as a picture of his goodness, we now have the final scene. And in the upside-down nature of this whole thing, the upside-down nature is that Jesus gave attention and priority to the untouchable in spite of the ruler of the synagogue. The upside-down nature is that the climax of the story is the very calmest part of the story. It goes from storm to demon, to disease, to a little girl. And in this moment, we are going to see that God has power, and in that power, he shares it with the goodness of a loving father. It says, Jesus took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Little girl, I say to you, wake up. Now, as I read this as a father, I feel conviction in just the way that I wake up my children. (laughs) I wish that I had the the discipline and self-control to every morning just hold my daughter by the hand and say, little girl, it's time to wake up. I'm much more of the, this is the day the Lord has made. Rejoicing and always lights are on, blankets are off. I'm coming back in a minute. (laughs) But think of the tender care that Christ gives to this child. It is time to wake up. And this child is a living parable of Christ defeating death. Look what it says in Thessalonians. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow like others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. And the whole picture I cannot help but see the priority that was given to the sinful woman at the cost of the child's life. And in that picture, we see the gospel on full display that God so loved the world that those who are perishing, an incurable disease, you will never save yourself. No human intervention will stop the untouchable, unacceptable status of sin that hangs over our head And the father stops at the cost of a child. He gives his own son that anyone who believed in the father's love to lay down his life and pick it back up would not perish. Without a parable, he did not speak. And so now you, at every stage of this, you have a timeline with Christ you will learn that one of the marks, one of the questions of the generations of people who follow is what makes a true disciple? What does it really mean to come and listen to the word and go out as a disciple? One of the marks that we see is that you follow Jesus unto fear beyond where you would go voluntarily. You follow him in ways that will bring you to fear and cry out to him, fall at his feet, is discipleship. Is he safe? No. He's too powerful to be safe. Is he good? Yes. And yet, while we were still sinners, he died for us. I'm going to close with a benediction of sorts because... We're all going to go, I hope, and celebrate the goodness of God this week. To think and meditate and wonder and wrestle with reasons you too can be grateful to a God that is good, even in unsafe circumstances, in dangerous waters you find yourself in. Sit around the table and it's, just, it's a row of unsafe things. But as we think about this Jude chapter of Scripture, the man associated with hope in impossible circumstances. I offer you three prayers of Jude. One, that God would give you comfort for your sorrow. That's a real-time prayer, no matter the timeline of how Jesus will meet you and show his goodness to you, that he can comfort you right now the God of all comfort and peace, comforting your heart and your mind and your body that he does, in fact, care. Number two, that God would give you courage in your fear. I cannot find a way to follow Christ. I cannot encourage you that Christ would call you to be his disciple, to walk in good works that he has for you, and remove the promise of danger and ridicule and shame. But I can pray that God would give you the courage to follow him. The courage to get on the boat through the storm. The courage to walk with him into the house. His disciples go and they witness the miracle of life after death. And I can pray for every one of you, by the grace of God, to be encouraged to trust him. And finally, a prayer that God would give you healing in your suffering. The God who does heal. The God who uses healing as a picture of his power. And all of the healing in these stories were just pictures. The little girl would die again. The woman would need more healing beyond what she went through. The demoniac waiting for the resurrection of those who are in Christ. And for some of you, a healing that would look more like the adoption into the family of God. The confession of the whole truth. That you don't just need physical healing. You need your heart to be healed. You need your mind to be healed. You need to be reconciled with the family of God. You need to be reconciled to God himself. And that healing is available now. That is the ultimate healing that this story points us to. And it is available because Christ laid down his life. And he picked it back up. And he offers a free gift of salvation and redemption, and adoption to anyone who believes in his name, if you believe for the first time today, or for all of us, as we go forth to celebrate Thanksgiving in the privacy of our homes, we now celebrate Thanksgiving as a church family by holding in our hands the body and the blood of Christ, from which flow all other things to be thankful for.